Ms. Ostapenko has no challenges remaining. Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by NCR's Spain and Sub-Saharan Africa correspondent, Tumani Cariel. Hello, Tumani. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for, yeah, for rejoining the show once more. We're going to get to your beat. I want to remind people of the top, and I will do it at the end, too. Actually, Tumani wrote a very lovely blurb, which is now available on the back cover of my new book, Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice. And you can pre-order that now. Read the book, but also read the outside with Tumani's nice words on it. So thank you. Thank you, Tumani, for, for that. Have I showed you what the cover, the, the blurb looks like on there? It's, it's nice. No. I'll do that me, at some yeah. point. Yeah. I will show you. I mean, I'll get my copies of it, I think, in a few weeks and then available January 9th in the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. I think it comes out a bit later in the UK, I think in April. But yeah, coming to shelves near you. So please pre-order. Tumani says thumbs up as do other people. And it's been nice talking to people yeah, who have who've read it. And so hopefully you can keep the conversation going and you folks can, can listen to or can read to while you listen to the show or separately from listening to the show. I should stop talking now about that and start talking about this episode. This is going to be a women's year interview episode, partner a bit with what we did with the men earlier this month with Ricky, but also want to touch briefly on this last couple of men's events before we get make the women the meat of the episode. You were at one of Tumani, the Davis Cup finals in Malaga in Spain. And I yep. am curious to hear what that was like. And also we can talk about the prologue to that, which for the year in championships, which are won by Novak Djokovic beating Yannick Sinner in the final. Sinner had a great run to the tournament, went 3-0 in group, beat, including beating Djokovic in the round robin. He has this chance to... Let's let's start with turn, and then we'll get to Davis Cup. So Sinner beats Djokovic, first, Djokovic's first loss since the Wimbledon final. He hasn't played a ton, but he did play you know Cincinnati and, and the U.S. And, and Paris and didn't lose anywhere there. Sinner beats him in a third set tiebreak. A couple tiebreaks, actually, he beat Sinner in. They beat Djokovic in. Sinner did. And then he has this chance of the round robin format where he's already clinched this, uh, a spot in the semifinals. If he loses to Holger Runa in the third match, it means Runa gets a second spot in the group and Djokovic does not advance to the semifinals and is eliminated. Sinner kind of held Djokovic's fate in his hands in theory and had this option to eliminate Djokovic. He instead went all out and beat Runa in a tough match, 6-4 in the third, including fighting through some back issue at some point during it. And he... You know, keeps Djokovic in the tournament by doing that, and Djokovic goes on to thrash Alcaraz 6-3, 6-2 in the semis, and then Sinner 3-3 three three in the final, and Djokovic wins yet again. This is sort of, I mean, obviously, great for Djokovic. Djokovic is playing well, all the records. We know this stuff. I'm kind of doing this weeks later just to hit this one micro point that was a discussion point. What do you think about the round-robin format? choices that in theory Sinner had uh we were both in were you in Singapore in 2014 yeah, yes yeah, you were yeah, because was. you were in that photo we we're in the famous photo together oh I, who were you in the photo I, I was I wasn't in the photo I, I didn't get oh you were in the photo it. that's right yeah oh no I was, I was too okay. young for it or something oh I'm sorry um I got to play Serena in the photo it was a highlight of my life <laughs> I think we should actually actually explain what the photo is it's it's the, the photo that um Sharpova posted of, of the players behind the scenes I think it was at the the draw ceremony or something, wearing dresses. Yeah, where they were just they were just sitting in a row of chairs, not yeah. looking at each other mostly. Or certainly, Jeannie and Sharapova, who were next to each other, were just like completely avoiding each other. And then some other little interactions happening down the line. But it's yeah. just very famous, iconic. I yeah. More iconic than what they call the iconic photo, which is them yeah. all posed in their office. This was the real iconic photo, which Sharapova posted on her social media after seeing it in the WTA office because she loved it. Yeah, and so then eight journalists recreated. I think it was we take some kind of people picking their own country. So I guess Britain just had no player 
maybe it was what it was. So you didn't get a spot then. Kind of we had like trolls from Denmark playing Caroline Wozniacki in the photo too. That was Serena (laughs) sitting sitting next to him. (laughs) Anyway, uh, the photo is cute. Sorry, it sounds very bizarre in the description. Anyway, what do you think about the situation for Sinner and how it unfolded and opportunities and what it says about quote unquote sportsmanship and being competitive and all these things? I mean, in in Sinner's case, I think if you're a 22-year-old player who's trying to become a Grand Slam champion, world number one, then you should welcome playing over Dokwood. I don't care whether, theoretically, I mean, of course, it it would be ideal for him not not to have played Djokovic in the final, especially after already proving a point and beating him in the group stages. But for him... If he was willing to accept that life for him would, was better without Djokovic, and if if he was to have quote unquote tanked the match or just not you know not not tried towards the end of a, a tough competitive three set match, I, I don't I don't think it would say anything good about his prospects of of being able to one day down the line take out Djokovic in in a big mm. match in a, in a slam final. In my opinion, I mean most players, I don't think they would deliberately give up that match or. or tank yeah. or whatever in my opinion you, you know they could lose in the semi-final he could have ended up playing Alcaraz and and lost there but particularly in the case of a player who's trying to become one of the best players of his generation I don't think that would have been a good look for him so I think personally yeah. I think he did, did the right, right thing by playing to win the whole the whole time play, playing against Djokovic losing and, and and I mean I was going to say hopefully learning from it he clearly did learn from it because we saw what happened the next time he played Djokovic in a in a very important match. Yeah, no, entirely possible. And I, I that's a very valid way you put that. And I think also the other thing in support of what Sinner did, obviously, which Halep didn't have in 2014. Halep, I sort of alluded to 2014. Simona Halep had the same situation where she, exact same thing pretty much happened. Except for she beat Serena very handily in a round-robin match, kind of out of nowhere. Uh, six Love 6-2, I think. And then just had to lose in straight sets in her final match, she knocked Serena out, and it said she won a set, but still lost to Ivanovic, and that kept Serena in, and then Serena demolished her 6-3, 6-love in the final. The, the, what what is, Halep didn't have... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, this may be completely hypocritical, but if I was Halep, maybe I, w- I would have tanked, because we, we all knew <laughs> what was coming for her. It wasn't just that she beat Serena, but that two in love was going to be avenged, and it was completely avenged in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I think that, you know, the other thing that Halb didn't have that Sinner did have was the home crowd. I mean, Sinner's playing a, a big tournament in northern Italy, his home turf, and has people screaming his name and cheering him there for him, largely in this match. And Halep was in a very neutral place in Singapore and didn't have, had Romanian fans, sure, but I don't know. I, I, I just think, I think both sides are valid. I, I don't think it's different than like what Djokovic himself, for example, did like in the 2019 Wimbledon final where he let go at least one set in that match for sure he lost his second set 6-1 to Federer and for energy conservation for being able to peak at the right times and he won three tie breaks and won way fewer total points in that 2019 final but he won the points that mattered and he peaked when it mattered and was was strategic about it you know kind of playing a round robin format the same way if it's not single elimination if not every you know matches do or die which just invites these sorts of you know messinesses in them inherently in the format when you, because obviously most, almost all tennis tournaments are clean, single elimination, and there's no option but to win to stay in contention. I, I don't think it would have been wrong. I think it would have shown some dedication to the trophy or some pursuit of the trophy for Sinner to have looked at the playing field and said, and I think also the other thing 
I would say, and I'm just being devil's advocate as much as anything here. I think I don't say he did the wrong thing per se. Although I think people are much quieter about saying he did the right thing after he got thrashed in the final. Yeah. I, but I do think that there's a huge degree of what quote unquote tank could be. I think people, when they hear the word tank, they think of Bernard Tomic losing in 28 minutes in Miami. Whereas really we've seen lots of dead rubbers over the years from clinch players who just like kind of play, you know, in second or maybe third gear and go out and lose three and three or three and four and are not, you know, throwing themselves around the court and risking injury. We're just kind of playing safe to conserve energy too. Also, you know, you're going to have more ashes in the, in the tournament. So I don't think it's remotely, yeah, underhanded or dirty or whatever people want to say or unsportsmanlike or, or wimpy, whatever, to, to do this. Because also it's kind of a sign of respect to Djokovic and how hugely great he is. And no. yes, you're right. And then he did get thrashed in this final. And then he did come back and, and beat him in, in Davis Cup. We can skip to that part now. Italy wins the Davis Cup in Malaga. And you're the Spain correspondent for us, Tumani, and you were there in yep. in in Spain on behalf of NCR, clearly, for this beat. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, yeah, what, what that was like. It, from watching it a bit on on streams and TV, it did feel to me like it was kind of the ITF's vision of the Tennis World Cup looking like they wanted it to, you know, with good, with full stadiums, fans traveling from the relevant countries, including Finland, which turned out in big numbers for its Cinderella run to the semifinals. Yeah, what, what was it like on the ground there? And what did it feel like? So the other thing I will say, they also had two, which Davis Cup had almost none of in the years immediately before the reform was two top players playing against each other in a big match yeah. in Sinner versus Djokovic. They've been so long since Davis Cup really had that. Yeah, I, I found it was a very interesting week, week for me. I've Since the reforms happened, I've, I've, I have always felt that Davis Cup has lost a lot and... You know, certain yeah. aspects of the home and away and just the, the how different it felt to regular tournament play. I, I think it lost something. I, I actually wrote a piece about that right before the event. Um, but I've also was, also thought that, always thought that tennis is great. You know, like, like, there's so many, like, it's just a great sport. And and yeah. when, when, when you have two players who are against each other and going at each other, it thrives in, in many different formats. I mean, we, we saw it, I think the COVID years were a good example of that you, you go and watch Severia versus team and it, it's actually surreal to go and watch the I mean just those matches and the silence and the fake applause and like what yeah. the hell but like what the hell were, were we watching but in the moment it was you know we we were still completely in thought but that wasn't a great match you know it's a very tense tight match but not you know it oh was it was still, an awful in, match let's let, let's, let's use <laughs> yeah. our words Tumani that was one of the worst matches yeah. of all time and in terms of a grand slam final yes, yeah but but it was still entertaining it, and you look at the I mean <laughs> yeah, the, it was compelling the, for sure compelling yes. you look at I mean but, uh, another example Naomi Osaka got going going by Ben's book um against uh yeah. in her, her run to the <laughs> her run to the title and and those great matches she played against Brady and uh Azarenka again it's, but and, and my point is that this at uh, this format is still it, it still brings something different and, and we and it was still entertaining and and you know compelling and thrilling and as you said it, it helped that you had not only you know two top players going at it but just that two players who just played each other two times uh the week before that they ended up playing each other in singles and doubles four times in 11 days and yeah it, and it ended up being obviously an incredible match an incredible moment for Sinner in in his career coming back from triple match point down crazy utterly in, you know insane win really if you think about it just thinking about the overall event I'm not sure if it would work in there are many cities in in the world in late November 
this would work in. But yeah. Malaga, in a in a weird way, felt kind of perfect. It's obviously Spain clearly likes tennis and supports tennis when, whenever there are well, sometimes when there are events in in the country. It's one of the few places in Europe where it was the weather was lovely. You know, it was mid mid twenty. Uh, degrees Celsius the whole time, blue skies, barely a cloud in the sky the whole time, and so if, you, you know at the, at this point in the season, players normally go back to Europe and it's but it's always it's cold and it's you know you know everyone's wearing puffer jackets and le- million layers, yeah. but if it felt like an actual destination and people you know the fans were not only enjoying going there to enjoy the tennis but the whole the whole vibe you'd go into the city and you'd see you know tons of fans out just you know, enjoying time in the city. In terms of the the venue, it was good. There was was no Spain in the event, but, you know, crowds still came and the the actual tennis was good. So I think it was a a good week in there. It's not the Davis Cup that a lot of people fell in love with, but it still worked in a way, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think my my stance was always, and I grew up really apart from Davis Cup. Davis Cup was not at all formative part of my tennis. You know, I didn't grow up going to Davis Cup. I know for a lot of people in a lot of countries, it's their best chance to see tennis close to their homes. And for me, that wasn't it. And so I didn't have that sort of emotional attachment to it. And I just increasingly saw the result, the results, you know, having nothing to do with what, who was the best country in men's tennis. You know, it was more about who got their players to show up. And I, I said this before, I'll say it again. I kind of blame Federer largely for killing Davis Cup because because I think that he just routinely never showed up for Switzerland. And Switzerland would be in the world group routinely, but sending, you know, teams of Cudinelli and Allegro to go play ties. It just became this sort of hollow thing that was very far from the best on best situation. And the, the Grand Slam federations kept paying their players enough to show up routinely, but the other ones did not. And it just yeah, became a sort of alternate universe that it was kind of meaningless. And it still has some of that. Like, I mean, with respect to the Finland run, which I think is great, I don't think anybody thinks Finland is one of the top four men's tennis countries currently to make the semifinals. No. But but yeah, but I, this version, I think Italy is actually a super credible champion of this event as being a world champion as a tennis power right now with the depth they have in men's tennis and, and with Sinners doing. So I think that's all really positive for, for Davis Cup. And I, I think I think it could work. I think it can work. I, I know they only have to be in Spain all the time. It feels like it's always in Spain. This event, yeah. Davis Cup, since it got reformed. But uh, but yeah, I, I I thought it was I thought it was an improvement for sure. And I think people romanticize kind of the late years of how irrelevant Davis Cup really was on the world stage in the 2010s. Yeah, but again, I do I do think it's hard to see. the 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 big problem is I don't, I'm not sure it would work in in other countries. I mean, we saw it even yeah in in the. Obviously, the big issue in the qualifying stages was over the, you know, it was the Davis Cup quote-unquote finals, which, I mean, the whole, the way they just, the, the phrasing and the, you know, the way they The word it, finals needs to be taken yeah, out of tennis. Can I exactly. just say that as, yeah. as a general rule for, for all, for both tournaments too? We should not be calling the ATP finals the ATP finals. Call them yeah. something else. Call them year in championships. Yeah, yeah. Something that has meaning. Just the word finals is ambiguous, and if it's not actually a final, it's not a final. Yeah. That's my thought. Yeah, final already meant something. Final was taken. Yeah, yeah. as a yeah. word. Stop calling everything finals. Yeah, the, obviously the the group stages were split between four cities, and and a lot of those cities had issues with um, the 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 obviously the home matches were full and great, and you know crowds came, but then the neutral matches were just not. Nobody cared basically, and and clear, yeah. clearly there's a difference between you know the a, a more preliminary stage and then the actual finals where. I don't know. It's it's closer to the trophy. More more fans were willing to travel, but I mean, I, I think it's, it's clearly an issue even in 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 European cities with the, the attendance and 
I mean, I'm not sure if it, you know, I mean, clearly it's not going to work and it's never going to be, even though Australia has just reached the final two years in a row, it's, it's, those finals are never going to going to be in Australia at the end of the season. Yeah. Even thinking about like South America, unless the ATP finals suddenly moves to, a, you know, a city in South America or, you know, somewhere f- far from Europe, the Davis yeah. Cup is not going to move there. So I think it's, it was a good week. It's also very limited. Um, and yeah. You certainly can't please everybody in tennis. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you're never going to get a Davis Cup that works for everybody, especially when you start mentioning, yeah, the geography of countries in the Americas and Australia and Asia even. You know, not that they're playing huge world group players right now. But, yeah, it's just not going to please everybody. So maybe the Spain compromise is, is what we get. That's You know, the same way the Hopman Cup, for example, is always in Perth. You yeah. know, like having a somewhat permanent home for an event that's even a World Cup kind of event is not, not the worst thing in the world. Just one more thing. I should know that the um, issues with... <laughs> The, the ITF and Cosmos are still unresolved. Mm. They're still uh, after they split in, in January and they, they broke the contract. But Cosmos has t- tried to take the ITF to court. The ITF, I believe, from what I hear, they they wanted to maintain the well, they they wanted to maintain some finances and, and compensation from the original agreement. My, the point is that it's it's very messy, and yeah, I think we should just remember that as well. <laughs> that yeah, it's unresolved. Yeah. Speaking of mess, let's talk about women's tennis in 2023 now. There's a segue for you. <laughs> let's start first on court, just do a sort of top line review of the results. It's some big tournaments to set the stage what happened on court, and then we'll get to a lot of the on court stuff in the WTA and the WTA finals in Cancun. I know we're late on this, obviously. Lots of people were talking about this back when it happened, but wanted to do this now as a sort of clear thing, get some, do our own reporting and digging and research and talking to people and whatnot about informing ourselves before we dive too into this. So Looking at the calendar, starts the year starts off, remember this, with United Cup happened at the beginning of the year. New event for oh, yeah. ATP and WTA, won by the U.S. comfortably 4-0 and over Italy in the final. That was a new event that went okay. It, I mean, it went well in certain venues, and then, like, I think it was just too diluted and too big. It's coming back. We'll see how it goes. But the, at least Brisbane, the international is coming back, which is big. Yeah. That was a great first-week tournament that's now returning. So yeah. United Cup is returning in a smaller form. Which I think is better. Yeah, better, definitely. But I think even just one city, and either just Perth or just Sydney would be fine sort of multi-city thing i don't know if it, i i just feel like someone's gonna get shafted in terms of what they get there and then the year starts off with this uh australian open for the women that was uh i think kind of lackluster honestly a lot of the way for this tournament there were not that many good matches but there were two very key important matches one was elena rabakina beating Iga Svantec in the fourth round very decisively and then there was a big huge win in the final in a great final uh, for arena sabalenka beating rabakina uh, in three sets in one of the sort of uh, sort of a, a low profile match in terms of marquee name value. Honestly, going into that match with both those women less known, even though Rabakina did have a Wimbledon title to her name, her ranking was not matching that because she got no ranking points for Wimbledon win. But anyway, it was a really good match, a really high note to end this kind of tournament that had, if you look at the draw, just not very many interesting results and stories in it, honestly, through most of it. But finish on a really high note in great that final. final great 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 with final. my thought yeah one of the probably the best match of the year for the women put that out there now at least certainly the most like top line you know easy pick best match when looking at the most important matches i think that one's pretty yeah. pretty clear yeah. winner there then the tour winds through shantek gets back on track wins the 500 in, in qatar krejcikova beats her then in the final of uh dubai the next thousands krejcikova sunk back in the top 10 this year very quietly i think really even though she, so good for she, her. she wanted more noise in February, if you remember, after she yeah. won that. A, a great, amazing title run. She beat, um, I think, four four top 
10 players or something. Yeah. She wanted to take and and Sab- Sabalenka, I believe. Um And that was tough for her. I think I think that she honestly like I think that quote honestly kind of haunted her. I think yeah. she did feel pressure from that and and did that was not insignificant for sort of her her dip for the, a lot of the rest of the year even though yeah. she does come back and and finish in the top 10 with a good run in uh Zhuhai in the end. But uh yeah, Rybakina beats Sabalenka in the Indian Wells final. That's sort of a rematch again of the Australian Open final, so showing some continuity there. Rabakana also makes the Miami final, loses to Kvitova there, kind of a, a surprise Kvitova run to a title. Great to see. Uh, some long tie breaks in those in those finals as well. Uh, 16-14 first set tie break that Kvitova won in that in that Miami final in the first set. Yeah, it's crazy that Rabakina was a match away from the Sunshine Double. That's you know. Yeah. Now she was. I mean, Sabalenka and Rabakina, Rabakina especially, they were the players of the first part of the year, and that really kept going. I think until the French Open. Yeah. Really, so Schwantek wins Stuttgart. Also, before that, Schaber wins uh, Charleston. Schaber had a very up and down year. Sabalenka beat Schwantek in a big Madrid final. That was a big moment of two beating one, and sort of sets up the the torch passing at the top of the rankings happening later in the year. Another one of the best matches of the year, in my opinion. And and Sabalenka basically had to red line towards the end in order to win. And Schwantek yeah. had to accept that for once. She played a decent match and just got beaten. Yeah. And, but in a way, like at that point, I thought we'd see, I mean, they just played back-to-back tournaments and it seemed like they'd play, you know, several more times in the year because they were clearly the, the two best players at that point. Yeah. And and should also just add, obviously, Madrid was the, the venue of the, the first drama of the year or, you know, the first big drama. Madrid, I was about to say, it was Madrid's kind of where things started to go a bit awry <laughs> off court. There was, there was Kate Gate, people remember. Where whose birthday was it? Sabalenka had a birthday, right? Sabalenka got a, a birthday cake, and then Alcaraz and then Alcaraz got a much bigger birthday cake, and obviously he's from Spain, and he's you know, been, but it's the the huge huge difference in cake output that is just seen as symbolic by yeah. some of the women, including Azarenka, who was critical of it, who said it sort of matches a lot more sort of things that women are not happy about, and we know from Madrid, Madrid is somewhere that has been an equal prize money tournament actually for for more than a decade now. It's one of the rare equal prize money tournaments the only one in europe outside the slams was equal prize money tournament but it has always felt like the women are really a sideshow yeah. there in a lot of ways and that got reacted to by the leadership of the tournament by not letting the women including azarenka speak at the women's doubles trophy ceremony which completely backfired yeah and yeah and and, mess. and, and, and yeah and, and so, so during that tournament there, there was also players were frustrated about the late late nights and um you know yeah. late matches and Azarenka, Azarenka herself was was so so Shriantek was frustrated earlier in the tournament, and then Azarenka was frustrated. I think it was that her semi final doubles with um, Haddad Maya just went on really late, and I was in Madrid, and I think they were massive. Like she was trying to like you know speak with the organizers, and there were discussions behind the scenes, and so when it came to the final, then they were you know they 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 thought that she was going to use the use the, the mic to basically put them on blast. Funnily enough, Shriantek actually, you know, in, in her speech, she referenced the, the late nights and, and how they weren't exactly ideal, um, which yeah. probably didn't go down well. And, and then they thought Azarenka was just going yeah. to let it rip. And That is one thread that we're going to get to later, the sort of idea of these of these women, of the players calling out the tournaments publicly in ways that embarrass the tournaments for better yeah. or for worse and i think that yeah. a lot of the things in in madrid i think certainly the doubles final not having the speeches that's such a horrible look i mean come on like what are you 
what do you do? That's like, that was a complete overreaction. And I think a complete miscalculation of the moment yeah. uh, rather than just, if you have issues talking to them before the match, or before the ceremony and trying to make sure things are good to dissuade you rather than just saying no microphone for you. We're too afraid of you, you mouthy woman, you like, yeah. so yeah, that, that I think was a, a big, big misfire. And yeah, the other thing I'll say about this and you can go wherever you want with it is this also was the start of these, the first mega masters, uh, which are mm-hmm. becoming the part of the tour where Madrid and Rome this year, and then next, I think the year after next, right, is when Cincinnati and Canada will both kick into being two-week events. Also, we also had a two-week Shanghai tournament on the men's side this year. Which was and the worst. I, I just, I think no one wants any of this. I think, honestly, my, my take on this is pretty clear. I think this is just diluted and unpopular and doesn't, the players don't like it. The players don't like having to be, in these tournaments longer and having matches be more spaced out and spending more, more nights in hotels, more time. I don't think the days off during a tournament are meaningful rest. I think you still are in tournament mode. If you have a match the next day and you're not gonna be able to recuperate mentally, physically in the same way as you would, if you were, you know, home for that extra week instead at all. And yeah. And I think that for fans, it's a bad deal because I think fans who buy tickets get essentially half as many matches. A lot of days, if you're only getting half the draw playing when you used to get all the draw playing, uh, for a lot of these days of the tournament. So I think it's just, I think it's crappy. I think it's really bad. And I don't think that it's done anything to uh, elevate the esteem of these tournaments. It, they're making a little bit more in gate revenue for having more sessions, but not not even hugely more because the, the sessions they're adding are, are weak sessions, you know, weak as in uh, feeble, but they, yeah, I, I just think it's, I think it's a bad deal. I think it's, I think it's been, I think so far it feels like a failure and I, I, I kind of hope they stem the tides and stop this. Cause I don't want to see this happen to tournaments like Cincinnati and, and Canada, which I think are nice products at being one week. I think a one week masters 1000 event is a great, great product. And I think this really hurts that in this way that I, I don't like. Yeah. Just going back, I was, just, I was going to say that I interviewed um, Azarenka in Rome, like, directly after and she was adamant that she wouldn't she would never ever like use a speech to you know to to blast the tournament in that way and that it was mm-hmm. you know almost kind of offensive that they they thought she would that she you know she she is she says she has a obviously you know she's very opinionated and you know has you know talks a lot about behind the scenes more than in front of a mic and in a crowd of fifteen thousand or whatever i fully agree on in terms of the the length of the the masters and it's funny, like, we're, in, in tennis, we talk about length of matches all the time and best of three, best of five, but tennis is really long because also because of the length of the tournaments, the length of the season, yeah. the length of how much effort it takes to keep in touch with the tour year-round. It's clear that the tours are trying to, in many ways, copy the popularity of Formula One and to be more than four major events, essentially. They want each event to stand out and, and be its own big premium event and and brand and and etc but formula one is one weekend really this is two weeks even for you know fans who are used to staying up you know until the early hours of the morning and (laughs) having to commit so much to following dennis you could just speak into people and you know us as people covering the event it just these events just drag on so much yeah they really do it's something that really just dilutes it and again it's one of those things that's at odds with some of the different interests in the sport. And one of the things that gets talked about and that fans talk about and, and players talk about too, in a more hypothetical or, you know, ideological philosophical way is the idea that there should be more jobs for players, right? That there should be, you know, more players should be making a living, more players should get to, you know, make money. 
But actually, when you expand these draws, like they did to make these 96-player draws in Madrid and Rome, it adds a lot of tennis that is lower-quality, lower-value tennis to these cards as an extra match. Because usually, before, at least in Rome, let's say, players had a buy, or the top players had a buy in the first round. That buy is really, they still have to play, now they play six matches to win the tournament instead of five like they used to. That's meaningfully more more work for them. And the unseeded players had to play seven matches now instead of six. So it's meaningfully more work. And I don't think that the value you get for it is is worth the price. I just don't. I don't think the quantity matches the quality. And I also think you get some bizarre results happening, like certainly in in Rome, or let's say, I think on the men's side, for example, and, and just to briefly mention them in Madrid, right, there was a really some strange results in the men's draw and Struff, like made a deep run and yeah. the final i think yeah, a lucky yeah. loser and just <laughs> and just some some odd things happening there and and like and you have like kalinina making the rome final a week later on the women's side or two weeks later as it happens because it's a two-week tournament and then you have like for example sabalenka wins madrid and she's so exhausted she goes and loses her first match in rome and i just don't think for the tour as a whole it's worth it to 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 have these these back-to-backs have to be more grueling when they're so packed together and we saw this in the old days you know that's why the men got rid of best of five finals at the masters events because it was having negative carry-on effects for example i think it was rome right that went before hamburg in the old days and hamburg had the strangest often the strangest results of any masters event on tour for a while because the best players were exhausted from their rome runs and just didn't show up for hamburg the same way and so hamburg was eroded as a prestigious term, because of those bad results that happened, and Hamburg ultimately lost his thousand status, probably not coincidentally, um, because of that sort of unideal uh, product it had been given for a while. So yeah, I just I just think it's bad to be to be simple. I, I I don't I don't think it's worth it, and I hope they reconsider. Yeah, I think the only way that they would be able to placate players, I think, and and players would probably be on board with it, is if extending to two weeks or however you know however many days, 12 days or whatever that it leads to significantly more prize money and that hasn't happened yet i don't think it's in their pro- plans to double prize money no. to the, but the, but the but the thing is also and this goes from media too not that anyone cares about us but now you, if you're going to cover madrid let's say you have to pay for an, a bunch of extra nights in a hotel and that goes for the players too yeah you know like paying for extra nights in a hotel for their coach and physio every all the expenses just go up and including time as one of the ultimate expenses that you have to pay, you know, to be at a tournament. And yeah, I, I think it's just, I think it's pretty inhumane and something that in the human, you know, scheduling, obviously matches are going longer too. Late matches also are a problem. Uh, but yeah, just increasing the quantity of matches. Like we had in Bercy for the men playing six matches on the schedule in a day. Of course you're yeah. going to have late matches if you, if you yeah. overstuff things like this. This is, this is completely foreseeable event. So yeah, just some, some lack of thought there and just a lot of, greed on all sides everyone just being demanding and so this is when i i felt like rome to get to back to the women's for a year to get back on this conveyor belt here to pick up pace rome i thought was a really weak tournament for the women obviously they had this dud of a final where clinton retires yeah. uh in the in the final yeah just and rabakina got a retirement win also from Svantec in the quarterfinals uh Shv- i think uh Rubakina also had another retirement win on the way against kalinskaya in the in her second match so a lot of uh, a lot of retirements there and just yeah a sort of downbeat off week because i think that just people were exhausted i don't think you can duplicate this twice in a row when you know you have the french open coming anyway and no yeah. one's really trying to peak in rome so yeah i just thought it was all around uh flop bluntly 
this part of the year. And the, the trophy ceremony was weird as well. Not not in the same way, but it was quite. I don't know. It seemed it was so just messy. It, no one knew in what Rome. They were doing. In Rome, yeah. Yeah, was, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, they they went zero for two on trophy ceremonies and in Madrid and Rome. So the French Open happened. Sabalenka's sort of dominant year gets derailed when she collapses in the semifinal against uh, Karolina Mukova. Mukova makes the final, plays a good final, and then makes it a competitive match and a real battle against Iga Svantec has to work hard in that final to get it back on track, and she wins it. It's her fourth Grand Slam title, the most among active players, I guess, really, in tennis at this point, because Naomi Osaka is not, wasn't active. But before she returns to the tour, you can pre-order the book, uh, Naomi Osaka, <laughs> her journey to finding her power and her voice. Uh, see what I did making the French Open about Naomi there? That was that was slick. All right, so yeah, please do it. I appreciate that. Yeah, Svantec wins. A big result for her to back up that title. Worked a little bit harder for it. And I think one of the other things that happened in that tournament uh, was Coco Golf playing better against Svantec already. I mean, she she was showing some signs of life. That quarterfinal was was better, not quite there. And then Golf loses first round of Wimbledon, as it happens to Sophia Kennan. Kennan also had a bunch of quietly a bunch of big wins. This year, beating golf at Wimbledon and beating Sabalenka in Rome, some signs of life for for the former 2020 Player of the Year from WTA, Sophia Kennan, and the Australian Open champion that year. Yeah. Go on to grass, where the Russians and Belarusians are allowed to return this year after last year. Uh, Sabalenka makes the semifinals again, and there's two big stories, two big sort of fairy tale stories happen at Wimbledon. Svitolina and Shabur both beat bunches. I think both beat four Grand Slam champions each en route to their Svitolina beats Venus Williams in the very first round, then beats Kennan, then beats Azarenka. Great, really good match. Yeah, really good match. Azarenka, the whole handshake drama we don't need to get into, we talked about it at the time. Svitolina then beats uh, Svantec, who's number one seed, who made her first Wimbledon quarter, and then she runs out of gas against Vandrosheva, really, and just loses 6-3, 6-3. And the other story on the other side of the draw is on Jabur. Schubert also has a great march uh, going in consecutive matches after beating Freck and then by the player, not the lack of match by. Uh, she beats uh, Andrescu in the third round, another good match. It was on center court. She then beats Kvitova. Kvitova, really lopsided match, by the way. Then she beats Rybakina in a great match, avenging last the previous year's final. And then she beats Sabalenka, another great match, too. And then again, she runs out of gas against Marketa Vondrosheva. And for me, Vondrosheva was deserving champion, but also for me, a really unsatisfying champion in this tournament because I felt like she just played two players in the late rounds who just were flat and out of it and kind of no-showed for those matches was my uncharitable take. And I, I felt like the, the Vondrosheva result was a really kind of down result considering what the other options were of this tournament for a possible fairy tale win by either Jabur uh, for everything she represents for Arab women and everything, or Svitolina and the whole Ukraine returning mom story. Seeing Vondrosheva with, for me, a much less of a narrative there, I felt like was a was a tough, tough hand for WTA to be, for women's tennis to be dealt, because I don't know where that story goes, per se. Yeah. And that's, that's harsh, but that's, that was that was the general feeling from a lot of people, like, oh, that's a good for her, but, like, that's a not the result that the sport, in capital letters, kind of, was hoping for. Yeah, I mean, she obviously had a personal narrative with coming back from from injury and sure and, and being being on those grounds a, a year ago preparing for her wedding and on honest and on a personal note, I've, I've just always enjoyed Fondrasova. I was I was actually quite for some reason convinced that she was going to do something 
at the French Open and have a really deep run and just didn't materialize and then suddenly create just you know if you think about it she she started I think she started the grass season having won two main draw matches on grass in her career yes and that's a career that included a grand Slam final four years ago <laughs> and then an Olympic went, silver medal she's, she's had like, her yeah, moments yeah. yeah and yeah and then she went and won Wimbledon um but but I agree that yeah there, there were these two po- possibly particularly powerful uh, mo- moments with Svitolina um who and and Jabir and I mean, I mean, both of them were so. So, so Vitalina's, I think her run was quite incredible, right? Just, just how quickly she just got back up to speed, playing more, more attacking, being bold, and the way she spoke in press. She, the funny thing to me is that Svitolina's always been. I think she's always been like I've enjoyed speaking to her. She's always been. Mm-hmm. I've yeah, I've I've enjoyed her, but she never really had a cause in a way. Yeah, she yes. she, she came back with both you know, obviously being a returning mother and after her own, like, personal issues with burning out and, you know, all of that stuff. And then, obviously, the the, the war and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that kind of just came to an, an unsatisfying ending. And then, and obviously, there was then the heartbreak for Jabir, just a big, yeah, just, I mean, for, in, in, for her career, a quite a catastrophic result, really. And and I think she she knew it that in her pr- previous two two major finals she played against uh, Shriontek and and Rybakina, or even yeah. even though you know at the moment Rybakina wasn't the you know the stature she has now. Looking back, you know I'm sure she, uh, Jabir could rationalize that and in, in, in some and understand that she's a you know a top player blah blah blah. Whereas this is the one that she should have won and she knows it and she knew it and she said it and that's crushing and yeah well, it's we'll see where she goes from here because you know three grand losing your first three grand Slam finals i mean it's not this it's happened we've seen it happen with uh, halep we've seen it happen with classes but it's crushing and yeah and she was you know when she emerged from, from she actually admitted that she basically withdrew from her next tournaments in in the uh, north american hardcore swing i think maybe she withdrew from i want to say in canada didn't come back immediately because she was just miserable and she was just wasn't ready to face the music basically yeah yeah it's tough a tough 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 loss and i, I just want one more thing like Jabir seemed to cut through more than most players i've seen in in a long time particularly female players that so many people yeah. came came up to me and were so so upset and and crushed by Jabir losing even though you know people who don't really watch tennis or anything but knew who she was and understood her story and she just has this kind of special charisma i think that has yeah. enabled her to really win over a, a lot of pl- people over the years and yeah we'll, we'll see if she can she will ever be able to like finally do it and and, and win a slam yeah it's just tough because you learn and again nothing can get this is all not this is not this cert part especially is not about vandrosheva at all but you kind of learn, sadly, early on, I think, especially covering it in person. I felt like I learned it more viscerally than when I was a fan of a sport as a, as a kid or as a teenager, whatever, before being a journalist, that deserving it or being like a worthy person or champion Don't, doesn't mean anything. Doesn't win you the trophy. Doesn't yeah. get you the trophy. It's not about character. It's not about story. It's not about magic or about the best ending. You know, movies are like that, sure. And yes, sometimes, occasionally, tennis works out that way. But I think kind of more and more... Honestly, in a lot of the the era, which I'll say, you know, widely, it's let's say the era since Serena went on maternity leave, 
I think it's been a lot about the the landing not quite happening with with tennis, you know, with, with people not quite getting what they want, with the with the public not quite getting the result they want. And there have been some exceptions for sure, like Barty, I think, had, was a popular champion at Wimbledon in the Australian Open for sure. Osaka was popular, you know. There's not the, the the 2018 final was was different and just a mess in general, but you know. But generally, it's been a lot of sort of results that are just kind of like, eh, at times. And at sports, you know, that's that's you can't control that. That's just how it is. And and with the parity we have in women's tennis, it, it anything is possible. I think if you play this tournament again, ten more times, twenty more times, I don't think Vondrosova wins it again. You know, I just think, but it was one of those matches where or one of those results where things broke her way and. And she's there, and and you can't argue with her winning seven matches. And I, mean, I didn't mention her beating Pagula in the in the quarters. Pagula from, from one four down. Yeah, from one four down to win six four in the third. That was her best match on paper um, in terms of actually playing well at the end of that match. A, because I don't think she played spectacularly well in the semis or final. She was fine. She was good enough, but she didn't like light up the place really per se. It's 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 just a bit tricky. I do think though that tennis skip ahead got a bit more of that sort of fairy tale stuff happening in the. North American swing with Coco Goff. Coco Goff, who's been sort of on the you know periphery, plateaued a bit seemingly, but after getting to the top ten, really broke through. Yeah. And we talked about this a lot in her in her open in, in our open episodes, but on rehash all of it. But basically, her winning Washington and then Cincinnati, including beating Shantek, who'd been her complete you know stopper in in Cincinnati, and then winning uh, her the U.S. Open by beating Sabalenka in, in the final. That was a big result for tennis. I got to say, I feel like a bit, you talk, say whatever you want about golf, I'll skip ahead a bit. I feel like, at least for me in the U.S. so far, that match, that result did not have the shelf life I expected. I don't feel like golf is still as in the conversation in the month since that I expected her to be. I feel like it was a big moment, and I don't feel like it's sustained. And so maybe they're gearing up for like a big push before the next major in Australia, potentially. You know, when she's going to be a major champion for the first time at a major and new season and doing new sponsors or whatever. I don't know. But I got to say, like, I feel like for me, I was surprised a bit at how fast that seemed to fade from public view. It's not like Coco Golf has been, every, like, you know, uh, everywhere in America. She kind of hasn't been. I feel like to these days, it's, it you need more, but it, it's more than just one win, right? I, I think, you know. I guess even, the teenager at the U.S. Open, yeah, yeah, you know, know American, yeah. it should be enough. It should be enough. Yeah. Worked for Raducanu. Raducanu, I'm saying what Raducanu had, and maybe it's a very conscious choice by the golf family or the golf team to not do what Raducanu did. Um, but yeah, you have a lot of, I've seen a lot of players, including like Naomi after her first US Open win, including Raducanu certainly, you know, kind of, yeah, ride this more than I just, my perception is, and American listeners can tell me if they think I'm wrong. But yeah, I just have not seen Coca reach the kind of ubiquity and household name. She's everywhere in this. Yeah. You know, beyond that sort of weekend that I expected her to sustain a bit more. Yeah. Uh, so I've just been thinking that. Even even in like Cancun, I didn't feel like she was a standout big name in Cancun per se. Yeah. I mean, maybe it is a it is a conscious decision for my team. I mean, she's already experienced so much attention and scrutiny, and as well as the positive sides, endorsements, and sit uh, from a young age that just following following her first slam by just leaning into it may not have been very helpful for her. But yeah, I, I, I was going to add, add just that to a reminder that Goff lost in the first round of the of Wimbledon. Lost to Kennan in tears in the press conference. She said, she said afterwards that after the Wimbledon, that was the kind of one of the first few moments, like since, I mean, since she, she started, you know, playing tennis, 
that she began to doubt whether she was capable of doing what she, you know, she'd set out to do, win, win Grand Slams and be the, one of the best players in the world. And then to see, like, just how quickly it, it, it slipped into gear. And I don't think I've ever seen, like, a breakthrough that that was so... that went through all the steps. You know, she, she won a 500, then she won a 1,000, then she won a, a slam in quick succession. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, just, yeah, obviously a, just a, a big moment for her after all the attention and, you know, the, the negative parts of, of it got to her. You know, she'd read people's that, you know, the, the hype was bigger than her talent. And I think initially it hurt. And then by the, by the time the U- US Open rolled around, she was <laughs> deliberately seeking those comments out and reading them and using them as, as inspiration to for her matches. And yeah, that, that was a... And, and so obviously she beat Sabalenka in the final. I think, I mean, to me, the craziest thing about the tennis season this year is that Sabalenka really put herself in the position to win three of the four slams and reach the other slam final this year. Could have won all four. I mean, yeah, she could have won, won, won all four, for sure, yeah. She she won the Australian Open. She, put, she was up 5-2 in the third set against Mukova in, in the, at match point in, in the French Open semis. She yep. she was leading Jabir in the semis of, of Wimbledon. And then mm-hmm. here she won the first set against Goff in the US Open final. And, you know, it's, it's not just like, oh, she's so good that she could have done this. She put herself in the position to, to have, like, an all-time great year, really, if you think about it. Yeah. And then she doesn't even finish as number one in yeah. the end, to skip ahead. Like, it's kind of amazing that she was this good. And it was nice seeing her, just on a competitive level, it was nice seeing her step up and really challenge Svantec, who had not had anyone on her level. Svantec had not had anyone on her level in 2022. Yeah. And seeing right from the jump when Rabakina and Seta beat her in the fourth round of the Australian Open, I mean, it kind of served notice, like, okay, the field is as as geared up and is ready to to take on this challenge more meaningfully and Fiontek, yeah fought back and and scrapped and won beijing which returned uh, the tour returned to china by the way and then she won the year-end championships in cancun to finish the year obviously cancun we're going to be focused on a lot and the cancun i think dovetails conveniently with a lot of sort of general tour topics and issues that are smaller themes that maybe we spent not enough time talking about in this blow through the year, which hopefully was somewhat useful as a refresher because the year is a long time. Like remembering what happened in Australia is, is dis- very distant. It always feels like every time we do a year in review kind of show. You, you mentioned Beijing. This was also the year that um, after, obviously with Peng, Peng Shui, um, Steve, Steve Simon had essentially said that the tour wouldn't go back to China until they, yeah. you know, they were con- they, they'd set conditions that they were never going to be met. The, 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 ch- Chinese government was never going to acquiesce to the little WTA, um, but they set conditions. You know, being able to speak to Peng Shui and and, and know, have direct contact and and know how she is, that she's able to speak freely, that she's okay. Um, and in, in the end, in May this year, they um, Steve Simon just announced that obviously in, in the first year that events could return to China, that the WTA would be going back and. You know that, that we see. That's how we saw them going to um, back to Beijing and and other Chinese yeah. events. I do. I do think actually it's, it's it's very useful and better steering by you to talk about China now because China was also a huge part of what happened with Cancun because yes. the WTA had signed and announced in twenty beginning of twenty eighteen they announced a ten year deal starting in twenty nineteen for the year in championships WTA finals as they're called to be played in Shenzhen which is a Chinese city right across the border from Hong Kong. And they were, it was a big, big deal. The women were getting more money at that point for their year in championships than the men were. 
I mean, it was a really remarkable deal for the WTA. And they went there and played the first year. Barty won a record check for four point something million dollars, uh, record prize money. The, you know, crowds were not great or whatever. It was not a great event otherwise, but the money was very impressive and it was seen as a big boost for the WTA's future. Then obviously the world happens, the pandemic happens, the Peng Shui situation happens. And one of the things that happened that did not get covered or mentioned at the time uh, overtly at all, which I think was actually a, a screw up by WTA, honestly. And I think one of the things that I want to sort of talk about in this Cancun section, I think the WTA really lost control of the narrative in a big way uh, on a communications level of telling the story of what was going on is that in April is when it became clear to them that the, the Shenzhen deal was not going to be resumed. And the Shenzhen deal, which had been for 10 years, was not going to be maintained. It was dead. And that was what they had not ruled out before April. Obviously, if they'd been able to go back to this stadium and this place that had this big deal and all this cash on hand, that was their plan A, for sure. And it wasn't until April that that plan A was was ruled out uh, this year for them. And so that left them scrambling yet again uh, to find a, a host. And this, you know, I, you have sympathy for the Shenzhen uncertainty, but there's obviously a pattern here for WTA of of having, essentially, if you want to count the 2020 year where no finals happened because of the pandemic, and the men did have one in 2020, of essentially four years in a row with no finals determination before September just puts them really behind. And the scrambling really showed in the bidding process, which was messy going on during New York with all sorts of ideas bouncing around. Saudi Arabia was going on as a major talking point. We can get to that and what that means later for the tour. That's still very much in the in the frame. And then the Czech Republic bid, uh, which had issues with, you know, all the way to the end of not being sure whether or not the Russian and Belarusian players would actually be able to play and compete at that tournament because uh, of Czech resistance to the war and objections to the war and, and government actions about that. And then finally, kind of out of nowhere, late this Cancun bid emerged and won and had only a few weeks to get ready. And it was just pretty clear, obviously, that with all sorts of different challenges and hurdles that the WT, that the organizers there and the, the product was not what anyone wanted. In no. the end. You, I mean, you know how I said earlier about the Davis Cup and somehow Malaga being a almost a perfect place to, you know, in, in yeah. November to hold it. This was towards the end of, of hurricane season in, in, in Mexico and a horrible place to hold the event. Obviously, the, you know, the, the wind was reminiscent of, you know, the, the old days of, of Indian Wells where the ball would move, <laughs> move yeah. like half a, a whole court, court length, you know, after one forehand. And yeah, it, it was just, I mean, a lot of it was just un borderline unplayable where, Players were just, you know, just trying to put the ball in court and, and remain solid. And and in the end, I mean, impressively, actually, Shiontek um, handled it better better than everyone. And, and Pagula played really well that week, too. Pagula, I guess, until Pagula, the final. Yeah. Pagula, Pagula yeah. played a very good tournament and was looking like the best player. I thought, And that was another disappointment. These two players were playing really well going to the final, and the final was just a complete dud, yeah. like an all-time kind of dud in this year-ending match of Shiontek. Uh, who had lost twice earlier this year to Pagula. There were real reasons to think Pagula, you know, was a, turning into a tough matchup for her and was going to be a challenge. Pagula beat her at United Cup and then beat her also in Canada on the way to the title in Canada for her there. Yeah, but this match was, was a, a really, a real down note to end up for a Monday final 
Like hmm. all of it was just sort of like wont wont, like amplified, yeah. echoing throughout the lands. And I, I did see reports, and I had not been able to confirm this, that there was a, a Cancun potentially was bidding to possibly host indoors for this tournament or an indoor venue in Cancun. That would have solved, it seems like, if that had been able to happen, a huge number of the pro- weather problems, obviously. They found a stable indoor venue to play, but they couldn't find a suitable place in the end and did this this uh, outdoor one, which, yeah, was yeah. which was built and the court was built, but the court was, there were some complaints about it. Yeah, the um, bounces. And the weather, and the, 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 some inconsistencies in the bounce for sure was happening. There were occasional bad bounces. Although I got to say, I don't care so much about that. Courts have bad bounces sometimes, whatever. I mean, fit, hard, not hard courts. <laughs> <laughs> Still, I don't care if it's a hard court or not. Back in the day, like this is one of the, th- I, I do think players are, you know, there have been hardcore tournaments I've been at that have had bad bounces for sure. Washington, I think, for a few years had that reputation for some players yeah. having some wonky oh, yeah. bounces. But anyway, Sock, yeah, I remember. yeah, Jack Sock exactly was was very mad about it. Jack Sock retired this year, by the way. That's another year in review thing. Goodbye, Jack Sock. The weather was kind of not within their control, somewhat, but also like it just was foreseeable that it could be a bad volatile time of year and sort of the wet season in Cancun, hosting an outdoor. A tennis tournament in the rainy season was was dodgy and they did not get lucky basically they were put in a tough time and it wound up being bad having a lot of matches backed up they also do this thing at the wta finals now where they play the round robin doubles instead of playing the knockout doubles when we first started going to the wta finals like in istanbul it was a four team uh, event and they were just a knockout so there's only three doubles matches in the whole time now the tournament hosts what would it be uh 15 doubles matches which is just a lot more when you're dealing with bad weather and an outdoor tournament that only has one court, things get backed up very quickly um, when you have a one court event. So I think at the very least, if they're going to host an outdoor finals again, which they shouldn't, I think it should always be an indoor event because of the round robin and the need for stability in the weather, no matter where in the world you are. I think that having a second court where you can throw some doubles on as an, as a alternate is a, is a key thing to have. Cause that was just a, that was all a mess and, and it was definitely, Definitely not good. No. The off court stuff, right? Well, yeah, I was going to say, so So, all that being said, everything that I just said, I was really struck during, and I think we're going to disagree here, which I think is great. Get excited for this. <laughs> I was really struck during the tour finals by the amount of public complaining happening from a lot of the players. Not all the players, but notably uh, Sabalenka, most clearly, at number one. And Von Drosheva also, too. It was, it was also in the field. They, but Sabalenka especially, Sabalenka plays and wins her first match. And Love then goes and on one. Instagram. Love and won easily, right? One of the easy match over Sakari. And after winning so easily, she goes to her Instagram stories and posts this like two paragraph thing about how disappointed she is in the event. Okay, Tamani, you have a handy. You want to read it for us? So, so after destroying Sakari, Love and won, which could have been a double bagel on, on Instagram, Sabalenka said, I'm happy that I was able to stay focused tonight, overcome the conditions and play well. I have to say though, that I am very disappointed with the WTA and the experience so far at the WTA finals. As I said in my press conference tonight, as a player, I really feel disrespected by the WTA. I think most of us do. This is not the level of organization we expect for the finals. To be honest, I don't feel safe moving on this court a lot of the time. The bounce is not consistent at all. And we weren't able to practice on the court until yesterday for the first time. It's just not acceptable to me with so much on the line and so much at stake. And then she goes on to um, thank the organizers. All that said, I definitely want to show my appreciation for the local tournament organizers, everyone that built the court at the last minute, 
and everyone that's working here at the event. I know it's not their fault and I want them to know, as well as all the Mexican fans, that I love them and appreciate them. I'm very happy to be in Mexico. I'm just upset with the WTA and this situation. Okay. So I got to say, I was really struck by that coming from... I don't know how big to start with this whole thing. But I was really struck by that when she did that. Because, first of all, she won this match so easily. Right? She was a game from a double bagel. To come on Instagram and say, oh, I'm so glad I overcame the distractions. Like, you almost double bageled your opponent. You were not the one who struggled on this match meaningfully at all. It was She played... It was very, very dominant match. So that was part A. And then also, for me, it just really kind of was this radical, for me, departure from what I'm used to from WT number ones, from top players women's tennis. Going back to what I've read and watched and learned and listened about Billie Jean King, honestly, to, to invoke that name back in the day. And kind of the, the leadership and stewardship that so often the top players women's tennis have had over the product and the tour and working to try to strengthen it. For me, this coming from Sabalenka in the middle of the, in the beginning, right after her first match, which she had still lots of tournament left to go, just hugely undermined product in this way that really struck me as being very honestly unproductive and just not helpful. I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I also, I got to say, and I'll just skip right to this part. I, I, to me, reading a lot of the sort of discontent that's been coming out about WTA and various reporting, to me, the fingerprints on this are very clearly from the PTPA, who we've not mentioned yet in this year because they still have no official role in tennis. But I think the PTPA, who I have to think helped Sablanka write this statement because Sablanka does not write or speak English in the way that statement was written. That was not her writing um, that she posted there. I'm very, pretty confident. This is just the... PTPA struggling to get any traction in men's tennis, but seeing this moment of weakness from the WTA as they're stumbling, uh, obviously with this whole Cancun situation and the, the China situation and not finding their footing really well at all, and PTPA giving this ammunition to these, these women who are then firing at them. And it also rings hollow to me from Sabalenka that she does all these complaints and alludes to the court being dangerous, but then keeps playing the tournament. If you're going to like say a court is dangerous, don't go play three more matches on it. That to me is 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 very hollow, and empty. Like like Sinner, for example, like complained about the the, the scheduling in Paris, how he got you know was playing late night and then day session the next day, and so he pulled out, and he backed it up. But for me, Sabalenka, are you ready to respond? But for me, Sabalenka playing on was just really empty. And again, it struck me as just being something that felt. Maybe it's a sign of progress, and a lot of people will say this that that WTA players don't feel a need to be working for the tour, right? Don't feel the need to go out there and hustle the way that Billie Jean King or, you know, certainly Everton Navratilova or other players, even the Williams sisters too, who were often on the player council, who were part of the leadership group of the sport and took that role as as growing the game seriously. That Sabalenka and a lot of her, I would put Rabakin in the same category uh, for a lot of different complaints she had this year as well, and especially late part of the year and complaining about performance buys and stuff and just taking these kind of wild swings at various things uh, publicly at different times. Maybe it's a sign of progress that they can have a sort of more normal employer-employee relationship in this very current way where, you know, they're not going to go above and beyond to do anything beyond their paycheck and they don't feel like they have to, you know, commit and, and, and sacrifice anything to help the company that's only giving them a certain amount. They don't want to go 
you know, giving more of themselves than that. And they feel entitled to, to minimizing their strain. But for me, it was just a, a very stark example of kicking the WTA when they're down. And I just could not figure out who it helped. If you're trying to drive out Steve Simon, whose name we, I don't think we've said in this whole episode, who's the WTA CEO. Okay. Fair enough. But doing it again in this moment of the tournament just puts a cloud over the rest of the event for me hugely when there's still a lot of tournament left to go. Say this at the end. Say this when, you, when your tournament is over, if you want. Or say it when you're pulling out of the tournament because you feel so bad about the tournament that you're willing to take a principled stand. But for me, this was empty. And for me, this was her seeming like a PTPA puppet. I disagree. <laughs> I, 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 I actually think okay, that great. Like doing the after, you know, destroying a top 10 player, love and one, was actually a, a very smart like it it was a good choice because if she did it after losing but by yeah she clearly wasn't salty about the result yeah sure you know losing a match any match really people would say you're a sore loser blah 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 you're just you know complaining but she won and she and she said her piece i think also as much as it may have drawn more attention to the issues it was clearly obviously a shit show from even before they stepped onto the court from you know the from from the moment where the, the the pictures of the stands, <laughs> the, the naked stands with the the court still not, you know the the court still not fully built, un- until like a couple of days before the tournament began. The fact that the players were playing offsite um, until the I think the day before the tournament began, you know those there were obviously issues, and and I think she's more than entitled to state her issues, and I do think that this was also part of. On- ongoing issues you know dating back before this event uh, as um, you know as i'm sure we're going to discuss there were issues around i think beijing and in china where players expressed their discontent there was um, a letter sent to the wta with players um a list of players who signed it and i'm sure this this again in conjunction with ptpa whatever but hugely yes yeah, the, yeah, the letter was yeah. clearly from ptpa yes but clearly they they had their own issues and I think, at least to me, it, it seems clear that the, the WTA didn't do a good enough job of addressing those issues directly with the players, and they allowed it to kind of fester, didn't properly, yes. yeah, didn't proper, properly, yes. un, until the, I think there was, you know, there were a couple of meetings, and it's the second one during the um, WTA finals, and just didn't <laughs> directly address those issues, and um, we, 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 again, we then saw the the letter from Steve Simon that he he sent to players and kind of after their meeting and I just think there was just a, a gen, general dissatisfaction with the way the WTA handled their complaints and and that yes. and when you feel that you're not being heard privately, it's clearly that the next step is that they're going to speak publicly about it. I, I agree. With, I agree with you. This goes to what I was saying before. I think the WTA internally and externally did a bad job communicating all of this. I think all of it was letting others, whether they're players or other critics or just fans with screenshots of things looking a mess and umbrellas blowing around and all this negativity, I think WTA was really way too quiet and let the PTPA and other voices, especially around China, you know, set the tone and and find resonance in their message. Their message was resonating with players. Like what they were what they were pit what they were selling, players were buying. You know, when it comes to these top players, including Jabir, who's, you know, kind of gotten cozy with PTPA, including Sabalenka and Rabakina. Like there was this, and especially Jabir is notable because she's not someone who seems like previously a well of discontent at all. But she, but she became, she was one of those voices as well. 
uh, this year. And there were obviously still some things going, but also some of the demands and stuff from these like letters were seemed completely out of touch with reality. Like asking for these huge six digit uh, minimum salaries for players throughout the top hundred. Like, where is that money coming from? Where do you think there's no rev? There's no money in women's tennis right now. There's not sponsors or anything. Like you can say you want money and demand money, but there's no money. It's just kind of, it just seemed empty again and just seemed like it was trying to make the WTA look bad. And I think it, it, I think it achieved that. And I also think what Sabalenka does in her statement where she's absolving the local organizers of any blame, but taking everything at WTA, local, local organizers are the ones who are responsible for building the court. And I understand that the WTA put them in a bad position by having such a short turnaround on their bid. But ultimately, court construction is not a WTA job. It's local organizers. So for what she did to me by singling out the WTA and absolving everyone else in the process very clearly in that letter was just, again, trying to land punches against the WTA and the leadership, in my mind, to weaken it, to get to create this avenue for PTPA to gain some sort of power in the sport, which they just currently have none of in any official capacity. Sure, but again, so so just to go back to some of the other other topic, um, I I don't think that WTA players should carry water for the WTA in in, in all topics. And, you know, I think they're more than entitled to to speak out. Actually, in in a way, I actually found it quite refreshing, you know, when when you look back at, you know, you talk about the the older players, but in the past few years, I've felt like a level of almost just contentment from some of the, the top WTA players. And I don't know, one one example that comes to mind is, is Simona Halep. And yeah. a few years ago when she, when she was asked about equal prize money and, and you know, Tyriac, you know, mouthing off as he always does. And then her response yeah. was something like, well, we can see that. So the one thing I'll say is that we can see that they, they get more viewers than us. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I think yes. back to when when I you don't want the WTA number one to say no. that, and that's the thing. Like I do, I do think be I do think in this way the ATP is not. I do think that the WTA existence is inherently political, and I do think that the role of WTA number one is inherently political role and sort of a diplomatic figurehead of this of this sport and of this movement and of this championing of equality. Right. And and yes, and I, I, I do think in that way that it's very coherent, absolutely, for for Sabalenka to be out there demanding better yeah. and demanding respect and demanding treatment and equal things. All that's fine. I just it, it was the timing of it for me, largely. Again, if she'd done this diatribe when her tournament was over, but for me doing this this attack on WTA when they've been trying their best to salvage this mess they had in Cancun and were obviously not, not succeeding all the way in doing that. But for her to say it was dangerous or whatever, then keep playing to me, that was just super empty and just did nothing, did nothing but be a turd in the punch bowl for this already kind of, you know, a suspect punch. So I, you know, I, I think that, yeah, for me, it just, it didn't help. And, I don't know that it got the consequence. I mean, Steve Simon, for example, still has his job. There's no, there's no, indica- I don't know if he's, how that's looking. We can get to also these reports that are coming out too, by the way, which I think are very early, very speculative things. These conversations that have been reported about possibly the Grand Slams uniting to sort of acquire basically the Masters events, the 10 big events, and run them sort of top down that way and have the, the ATP and WTA really much more on the sidelines, just doing sort of administrative stuff and lower level tournaments and maybe the year end championships. It's a, look, it's a time of transition. I think that's, that's a huge swing. I think that's still from everything I understand, that's still very, very early nascent talks and so many things would have to get put in, in a row 
in terms of all the cats you have to herd to get any sort of major reform in tennis. That's been such a huge obstacle to reform in tennis for, for decades. I mean, people have been saying since the beginning of pro tennis that it could be better organized, and that has never really changed. But yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I just, for me, it felt like a real departure, especially also I with Sabalenka, a couple of things for her particularly, and this is coming off at a rant at her, which I'm actually okay with, is that the WTA put the finals in Cancun in large part to make sure she could play, mm-hmm. right? Czech Republic was the other option, and that ultimately got decided against by the player council and by the tours who were very, who were concerned about the la- the possibility that their number one Sabalenka and also I guess Vera Zvonareva, who wound up being the doubles champion, uh, who's the other Russian uh, in the mix, uh, wouldn't be able to play. Right, so they made this this choice for Sabalenka because they wanted her to be there, and then for that it felt kind of ungrateful for her, and that's a, a you know harsh word. People can take offense to that word, or whatever. For her to then be throwing such a fit about the conditions in Cancun when they made that choice and rolled the dice for her. And the other thing with, with Sabalenka is they also, WTA also had done so much uh, for her in Paris with the whole media standoff thing with, with the press conferences and the accommodations that were made for her to have not what happened to Naomi Osaka, by the way, midstream, great time to pre-order Naomi Osaka, her journey to find her a powder of voice available January 9th from Dutton. At all fine bookstores, big and small, pre-order now. I'm holding it up for people watching on the video, which is just too many. I, I, I just felt like for me, it just came off. It's all like if I'm if I'm WTA, I just kind of feel like sucker punched by this after like helping this person a lot this year in a lot of ways. That it just all comes off like, come on, like where's where's the love? Where's the where's the love? To? And again, you can say as a pro, she can expect more. She deserves more. She should stand up for herself and agitate for herself. And demand this and that, and I understand that on paper. I just think again, it just, it just really, it just really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. In this time when I don't, when I think again, I think WTA was stumbling, and I think she was kind of kicking them while while they were down, in this way that I just haven't seen in in women's tennis history previously. I just haven't. I mean, I, I do think it's it's a fair point that she she could have acknowledged that the reason the event, one of the reasons the event was in Cancun was because of her presence and because of of the efforts that yeah. had gone to ensure that she could play. And I mean, they really have, you know, <laughs> to, to the, to a lot of criticism and, you know, from, from other people, from, you know, people who believe that Russians and Belarusians shouldn't be playing at all, that the WTA have, you know, worked for, worked hard to ensure that, that, that she has been, yeah. she has been able to play in general. Sure. They've kept her in this sport. She could be out of this sport. Sure. She could be out of this sport. But I, I, I still think that it's clear that, that there were a lot of, the, just the disconsent has been leading up for a long time, and and I think sure. I think they're more than entitled to 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 be frustrated with it, and and given the the again poor communication with within within the sport to express their discontent, and and clearly yeah, yes you're right that I mean clearly some a, a lot of the, some of the issues were down to probably down to the local organizer, and you know yes. things that went wrong were not were not only on the WTA. But but that wasn't part of PTPA's no, agenda no. to go after Mexico, no. so they went after WTA exclusively. No, but 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 clearly, and this is where we get to we go back to to China and take a step back. Yeah, and, and the, the, the... please go for this. <laughs> this is the best part. Go for it. I'm, I totally agree with this part. Go for it. Um, but but clearly, the the, the core issues kind of are, are, are down to the WTA, and even while while we acknowledge that the, the WTA's plan A was still in action in in April until this year. Clearly, one of the core issues dates back to that deal, that fateful deal in in twenty eighteen, when when the WTA signed, you know, with with China, 
signed the WTA finals to the Shenzhen for, for 10 years for, cra- you know, crazy amounts of money. But, I mean, it's funny, like, even at that, that event, there were, there were issues. I don't, I don't know if you remember, but I wrote a, um, I wrote a piece about it, just the, the issues then. Which was great. Um, it was great. Great Guardian piece. Thank you. Um, it was uh, because that was the venue. Well, Shenzhen is very close to Hong Kong, and that was around the time when yeah. there were, the protests in Hong Kong were happening. And obviously, I mean, Hong Kong has transformed since then. And they were using that the venue that they, you know, one of the reasons was was built for tennis. They were using it to house um, military like equipment and military drills, and basically, obviously, sending a message. Down across to Hong Kong about what what could follow for the people who are protesting for um, free speech and, and and all of that that was happening in Hong Kong, but so, so there are issues then and 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 that's the issue and that's I mean the overriding issue is that they signed that deal in order to gain money there's a lot of financial opportunities from China but also signing with an authoritarian government and you know all, I mean we've seen. Basically, the the last few years have have been almost the worst case scenario in, in terms of COVID, in terms of yeah. Peng Shui, and and that's what happens. The funny thing is that the the WTA is obviously toying with doing that all over again with Saudi Arabia, which will be yeah. So <laughs> it's not it's, yeah. It's, Saudi, Ra- Saudi Saudi Arabia is host as we record the Saudi Arabia is hosting its first ever real tour event. It, it is an unofficial, but it's the the next gen event for ATP this week, and it is so empty. Yeah. Yeah. in there it looks i mean it looked they're doing some cute stuff like the little kids today look at 90s gadgets that was adorable loved that yeah. that was great these kids, kids seem charming and nice and all sorts of great stuff there but the stands are dire and it's yeah. just like you see photos of it it looks so bad and i remember thinking i remember diria cup which was the the exhibition event in saudi arabia i think about 11 months ago that was also just brutally empty throughout for really top players in that event too, like big, big ATP stars playing in front of no one. And so it's worse than it ever was in China on that level. And China was pretty famously bad for a lot of times for some off-peak sessions in, in tennis. So, so yeah, so it's, yeah, doing it all again. And it all comes from acting from a place of, of weakness and desperation at times. And, you know, part of this is also you can only kind of get the offers and the money that's on the table. Part of this is more atmospheric to dissolve both tours of us a bit. Like clearly they're not getting the money and the investment. And Saturday it was a different kettle of fish because it's they have, they have stupid amounts of money that it can just buy and bid anybody under the table completely. We saw that with Cristiano Ronaldo and Neymar and whatnot. See, look at me talking mm, about soccer. Yeah. But but they <laughs> but they they do have uh but in WTA for example for the finals, they have not gotten a great, you know, bid from from Europe that is so clearly uh, better than what they've been fighting for, for, for these finals, for example, you can only put the finals somewhere the bids for it. And the bids have been, you know, if Cancun in monsoon season was the best they could do, and you know, that's, that's all they can do or not hold the tournament. So it's, it's, it would be, they could also, they're holding out for a hero. As Bonnie Tyler would say it. And the Shrek movie would say it too. they, and also, oh, not a Grunval, great version of it, Melody Festival, and a few years ago. But they they need uh, some some you know some infusion, and they have that from Hologic, which is a great you know thing for them. That's a, a title sponsor for the tour that runs through next year, which will help. But yeah, if there was if some big group that wanted to to you know back up the the support for women's equality, whatever, and 
put up millions of dollars for a big event in the U.S. or in France or the U.K., whatever it might be. Like, you know, they're open for business and bidding. They're just not getting the the interest. And that's also one of the other things that's tough for women's tennis, which I don't think we talk about enough, honestly, when talking about the fortunes, is they're in a really tough spot as a as a sport just in terms of the cast of players right now. And, and this is, again, not to blame the players at all, but WTA has fewer household names than it's ever active on tour in 2023 than it probably had at any point before in its history. You know, like with, with losing Serena, with having Barty retire and, and Osaka disappear from the tour, uh, you know, you can look at the book, but she hasn't been playing on tour. It's It left them with, with very few names and, and recognition. And that, that doesn't help attract sponsors. That doesn't help attract people putting up these lucrative if you want to bid for, why would you want to bid for the wta finals which is an expensive event to hold in a moment when there's no big stars who you know are going to fill the stadium you know outside of maybe a Sviantec in poland kind of situation that's that's it, that's tough that's that's a real real thing you know because when we were covering this event for the first time 10 years ago you know in in istanbul we had serena sharapova lena uh, these other big names you knew were going to be reliable draws, not to mention other people. I could name the rest of the field. Your Radvanskas, your sort of more established top stars. Azarenka was there at that point. Yankovic brought the light and the joy <laughs> in that tournament. So, so yeah, so it was just, it, it's, it's, I think it's worth acknowledging too. That's, that's a, it's a tough moment just in terms of the results we went through this year. Things like, again, I don't mean to harp on her, but like the Vondrosheva result is, is tough for business on that front when you could have had something like a Jabir. Wimbledon champion title really rising the tides of the sport and floating the boats and whatever tides do. You didn't get that. You know, you just got some tough results and some, some, a number one in Sabalenka who's from a country that WDA cannot do business with in Belarus. That's tough. You know, like there's just, a, there's a bunch of things that are, that are tough for them and, and maybe it'll recover. And at all the other person I didn't mention who I do think needs to be mentioned, people kind of roll their eyes when they meant when I mention her often, I don't think you're going to do this is Radu Kani. Radu Kani was another big missed opportunity for the sport. Having a grand slam champion teenager qualifier from, from, from a, a grand slam nation in Britain, a huge market and have to have her essentially vanish from the sport. And I think she's coming back next year, but we'll see how her, how her results are. That was another big missed opportunity in terms of who, you know, if you were building a, a cast of, of potential stars that would be getting more investment for the sport, Radikani was one of them. So, uh, yeah, it's and I'm not mentioned China too, and what she meant for, means for the China market there as well. So, yeah, it's 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 tough. I think they I think they've had a lot of they've made mistakes, and then I think on top of them in terms of China, in terms of putting their eggs in that problematic basket that was being surrounded by tanks headed to Hong Kong, <laughs> uh, mistakes, and then also some bad dice rolls too. Yeah, and in, in terms of results, that I, th- I think it's both those things, yeah. right? I think they've both been both been making mistakes and then being unlucky. Yeah. It's the combination of the two. This sort of perfect storm of 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 mess at times. I, I, I mean, I certainly agree with you that the, the tour has been incredibly unlucky. Just it feels like forever. Even dating back to like you, you think of back when Serena, Serena Venus and the Belgians were playing, and they had like their big four for for a moment. Can you imagine if, you know, mm-hmm. if Fed- if Federer had gotten injured at 26 and retired and then, you know, Murray as well, <laughs> then not, none of what the, the last few years of the ATP, how it turned out. And and, and that's what was happened with the WTA. Play like Anna Ivanovic, who seemed so promising and won a slam, won number sure. one, and then didn't really, didn't really have any other major, you know, earth shattering results after that. And you know, yeah. it can go on. 
going back a bit, I, I as much as I, you know, thinking back to Cancun, as much as I, I as I've said, I, I, I'm totally fine with players expressing their frustration and 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 etc. I do I do actually agree with you that some of their claims were you know, less, you know, not credible or not really not as rooted in in reality. Mm-hmm. And like which? Well, I mean, as you said, like the I'm fully I'm fully on on board with the idea of of for example there being a, a minimum wage prize money whatever you want to call it for, yes. for players and going back even lower I, I, you know <laughs> that suits my preferences and how I love to see, see the sport go but as as you've said the reality the reality is that there's not no money there and you know it's not financially viable for the WTA at this point and and, and quite a few of the other issues as well. The other thing I would say on that, in terms of, if I can jump in yeah, quickly, sure. on the no money thing, one of the other main reasons, one of the other main things WTA is lacking, and this is a money thing, and maybe a little bit of a creativity thing, but certainly a money thing, the WTA does not have anything like the, the ATP has in terms of marketing, especially tennis TV. Yeah. What, what tennis TV has done for promoting the sport, for doing, for making, you know, a Tumblr icon out of Andre Rublev. yeah. yeah is great and really does a lot to build the sport and the women have not gotten that opportunity to create their own brands on a sort of tour channel that way you know to, to build their own followers and it hurts the tour and it hurts the individuals as well that's that's tough and that's something that i would would hope that the wta ventures which is this new oh, it's another thing we haven't mentioned too wta ventures is this new private equity group which is wta has essentially outsourced or handed off a lot of its business side to so a lot of the commercial deals, a lot of the TV rights deals are going to be handled by WTA Ventures, which has its own new CEO and its own, you know, other board that it's uh, filling out right now. And new executives are getting named for that as that that's in its early stages still. And they're going to handle that and it will leave the basically the WTA just to run the sort of the competition side and the rules side and the operations side of the sport and take a lot off of off of their plate, potentially. Yeah, um, so. so so hopefully that private equity money can be used in some way that helps uh, people connect uh, and and do something like the ATP is doing, uh, because WTA has occasionally been included in kind of like Tennis United fronts for some of those like little quiz videos and stuff, and it's great when they are, but that's kind of the only looks they get. You know, things like that matter and and do and do help really establish again. I think Tennis TV and the work the people who do there, minus loudly I will say their continuing promotion of Zverev, which I've said before, yeah. but. Minus that, I think they're doing a swell job. Yeah. And, that, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and and yeah, and that, that's that's yeah. I mean we're we're on the same page because that, that's what's gonna that's the direction I was I was going in. I mean we can, we can talk about stars and and um you know top top you know players who transcend tennis, but it's also possible for the tours to to build a like a base following yeah. and to again with creativity. Clearly, it's also it's money um, to market their own product and. The, the aspects of it that are appealing to people and the WTA yeah. has, you know, it's not just that they don't have a, well, I mean, it is, it's, it's not just that they're not doing what the ATP does, but they do nothing, you know, over the past few, it feels like nothing, it feels like, it feels nothing. like nothing, but anyway. you, you go and you look on the, I mean, not, yeah, um, that, that was a bit, you know, clearly there are people at the WTA doing hard work at, and I know, you know, many of them. That's that's not a slight on, on everyone, but but it's not impact. It's not impactful yeah. the same way. And and, you, and, you, you... and that is money. And also and also that's again why the the constant PTPA chorus of give us hundreds and thousands more dollars all the time. It's like there's other things, honestly, that should be a priority for for WTA above just increasing player compensation. 
because player compensation is largely okay at the top levels of the sport, even top hundred. I think there, you know, people are making viable incomes in the top hundred. Um, and but that investing in the sport itself, including investing in, in the business and social media promotions, whatever these things may be, I think will will yeah. again rise all boats and, and things like that. You you look on you look on the the WTA's YouTube page and there's just like small five minute highlights. You look on the the social media and yeah. there's just not much. There's you know in, in, in this day and age I think a lot of you know, you you look at all sports really Fans want to see more of yeah. their players. They want to see them behind the scenes. They want to see what, you yeah. know, how they are. That just isn't the case in on the WTA. Yeah, and the other thing is in terms of players taking ownership and responsibility for marketing the sport, I would like to see more of that. Like, I remember there was comments from, I don't know if it was Coco or somebody during, like, on day two or three of Cancun saying something like, hey, guys, like, come to Cancun. Like, we'd love to see the stands fuller. Like, let's get fans out here. For me, tennis players should always be doing that. For me, like if you're someone, and this goes for like top players, especially too, and they're big stars like Serena, I think Anna and Sharapova probably set a precedent of not doing this kind of thing, of promoting the events they were playing in. Like Serena wasn't posting on her Instagram or her Twitter, like, hey guys, come to Istanbul. Hey guys, come to Singapore. You know, like those sorts of, they, they were kind of above that. And Naomi certainly has that too. You know, doesn't try to promote the tournament she's in. And I do think, again, it would be, it'd be helpful sometimes for them to the players to pitch in where they can on that, on that front, uh, because there are a lot of individual stars to, and, and I'm talking about top line stuff, you know, like those kind of level players. And even Shiontek probably is that way in certain, in a lot of markets at this point where it can be meaningful. And, you know, I just don't always get the, I get the sense they're kind of doing the least they can get away with at times. And also acting kind of like in a way that I think women's tennis has and this interesting phenomenon that I don't want to get too into, but they're kind of acting like, they don't want tennis to define them and they want to keep it separate and they're not trying to like act like too wrapped up in tennis. And so they keep their, their feeds and whatever, like non-tennis looking at times. It's an, anyway, I, I think that that's something that I would like to see more sort of community effort for from the, from the group, from the cast to, to help, to help. Yeah. I think WTA needs the help. I, I think they do. I don't think they're coming from a position of strength right now. And I don't want to see, I don't, I don't think seeing them, you know, bludgeoned and pounded like they're you know some mma fighter on the ground uh is is especially uh it's not the i don't i'm not cheering for that some people might, might be but i'm i'm not i don't i don't i don't encourage that i don't welcome that looking ahead to again looking at the, the wt adventures and and how things will change and change next year one of the, the big issues the players have is is with the, the calendar and the schedule and, and how that's going to change and yes and how their their tournaments are going to be restricted as I understand it, play, yeah. players basically top thirty players will not if there's if there's a WTA five hundred and two fifty in the same week, top thirty players cannot play the two fifty. They have to play the five hundred. Yeah. Or and they yeah, they elevated a lot of two fifties into being five hundreds basically, and two fifties are almost becoming almost like what one twenty fives were. It feels like, like they're really just yeah. not part of the top top flight tour. Yeah, and and officially. yeah, and and I think they'll they'll have like two exemptions or something to be able to play 250s but it's also con conditional on where they are you know if if, if it's a home tournament yeah. that kind of thing um and that was already the case for top tenors before top tenors had a limited number of 250s they could play previously yeah. but they're just yeah lowering that down the rankings now yeah so so players are, are frustrated about that and they, they feel that you know that their choices are their, the flexibility of their schedule is limited and they're not you know it's effect you know it's going to have negative effects on on them and I, I do think there's a bit of a disconnect between 
again, that as as we discussed, the demands for more more prize money and and X and Y and Z, and and as as we've seen, I have a lot of criticism of the the WTA, but I do I do understand why they feel they need to focus on the big events and to essentially to push the top players into the same events as much as possible in order to you know so that they play each other all the time so, so that they create more rivalry so that hopefully more people are more interested and, yeah. and know them and you know I, I get that players are basically doing what every employee wants to do which is saying more money for less work <laughs> and that trade-off just doesn't work yeah. right you can't say we want to do less and be required less required of us and make more money yeah like pick a lane like because the because making those events premium and that's kind of the, the buzzword right now uh, around WTA, Steve Simon used that word in an article in the Athletic today or recently, anyway. You know, that's making those things the, the the rich events getting richer is the trend, and that's where they think there's more money in the sport, and they probably have their reasons. It's probably not wrong, uh, rather than having a lot of two fifties, which have never been very lucrative or, or profitable at all. That's kind of the trend there. And then yes, and having rivalries. We started off this episode briefly by talking about how cool it was that Djokovic and Sinner played each other, you know, four times in eleven days whatever that was. And that's, that's how rivalries get made. Right. And that's not what the women have had, you know, for results reasons and schedule reasons and mostly results reasons. They just haven't had with the exception of very recently, some Sabalenka versus Rabakina and Sabalenka versus Svantec. And that the whole little triangle that the women's big three, that was kind of looking like a thing in the early part of the season. Um, that was, that was constellating nicely between those stars but beyond that, it hasn't really resonated. But you do need those things. And it, it does require some degree of sacrifice and just doing it, you know? Like, it's it's not always supposed to be easy. Like, I think, I think I don't know if you were telling me or someone else was telling me about a quote from Juan Carlos Ferrero about this regarding Alcaraz and regarding scheduling. I, I heard the quote, but, you know. Yeah, but Ferrero is basically saying, I might butcher this, but Ferrero is basically saying something like, yes, the calendar's long. And he's saying this as a very recent player who who... Or a pretty recent player who knows this firsthand as someone who was a top player this century, saying yes, the calendar's long, but you just have to deal with it. You have to work and manage it and and train and know that this is a thing. And players have been complaining about the calendar length since time immemorial. This has been going on for decades, and well into you know since the start of the sport, the calendar's too long, off season's too short, da 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 da. But you're responsible for managing it. That's just that's the lay of the land. You can say it should be better and complain about it, but. Ultimately, you sign up for the sport. You can manage it how you want. You can also opt out of tournaments yeah, and that's, leave that's and, and leave and leave bonus pools, which is what players make is convince themselves is forcing them to play. But these are bonus pools for like perfect attendance at, at mandatory events, essentially um, that you don't have to do. You can you can you can value your rest and your preparation and your time over money. Um, but if you try to have everything, you're going to be unsatisfied with the results. Um, so. Yeah, that's basically what I think is kind of a constant battle in tennis. Yeah, this, I think I think it's a messy time. I think this episode's been messy in a way that I think reflects the the yeah. uh, the, the the landscape, hopefully coherently, but well. And one smaller thing, also, I, I did hear complaints about from a couple people who are at this level that the ITF events next starting next year. I don't know if you've seen this, are award fewer ranking points. The, the pro circuit events for the women, not like some significantly. Like I think some like winning like a fifty k goes from like. 60 points to 40 points or something. Although another nice thing that's happening next year is that on the plus side of rankings reform is that rankings are actually going to match the numbers of the events. So you look at 500 points for winning at 500 instead of 470, which is nice. Mm. And 1,000 for winning 1,000 instead of 900. So a little more pr- uh, truth on the label there for WTA events coming up um, than there has been in the recent past. So 
yeah, that's yeah. that's a kind of and it's kind of all over the place. If I can wrap up with just asking, what are your hopes for tennis in 2024, women's tennis? What do you what do you hope the tour can can do? The sport can do, not just the tour, but the sport itself more widely. Uh, despite a lot of what we said, I do think that one really, at least for me, very satisfying thing is, is when I go on the WTA ranking website right now and see uh, Ika Shontek, 9,200 and whatever points. Arena yeah. uh, Sabalenka, 9,000 points. They had two very consistent years. They played. Yeah. They were pre- They were present in deep in, you know, most of the big big tournaments. I I, I enjoy that, and I want to see more like that. I want to see. I'd love to see Osaka, by by the book. Uh, yeah, I'd you can pre-order the book actually now. By the way, I don't know if we've mentioned that in the show, but Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice, available on pre-order Amazon, Bookshop, uh, Barnes and Noble, Target, Target, Target has it. You can get lots of places and and in Australia as well. So go do that. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning I'd, that. I'd forgotten. Yeah, I, I, I'd forgotten. I'd almost <laughs> forgotten too. But I, I'd love to see her come back and and you know be be inspired by that. I'd love to see other. I mean, just there are there are n- numerous very talented, very good players who should look at who you know after seeing how Sabalenka looked at Sriantec and upped her level and and took her game to up to the stratosphere and to, as we said, she put herself in position to have. Uh, one of the best years we've seen in a, in a long time. I want to see other other players take that lead and and you know to to see. I, I mean, as we talked about rivalries, to see these players playing the really good players playing each other deep in tournaments and performing well and week in week out. They they've shown it's possible. And now uh, and there's a time actually. I, f- I feel when a lot of players seem to not feel it to feel it wasn't possible, right? To feel that being consistent, do, do it, performing it. Performing at a high level week after week wasn't really, you know, you, you couldn't really do that. You had to go yep. in your Muguruza and, and, and win a few slams. But, oh, I remember know. her. Yeah. Remember her. Remember when she was she was number one with like six, <laughs> under 7,000 points, like 6,000 points. Well, remember even uh, when, she won, when she won uh, Guadalajara 2021 yeah, yeah. Yeah. WTA Champion Finals, which was a great tournament, by the way. That was a really successful pop-up Mexican tournament. Yeah. So. Um, the sequels are never better than the original. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, but that's but my main point is that I I, I really did like the com- the competitiveness of the top two players and and even the other players who improved. Pe- Pegula, I know she yes she got destroyed and she's by um Pe- uh by Shrondek in the final tournament and and she's but until that she was that. amazing. Yeah, she 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 clearly she improved and she's she was so consistent like she you know. Her, like legit, but like her her, her win loss. I mean, in terms of the amount of matches she was winning, and you know her win loss record, her winning percentage, her just week by week performance was great. So I, I just want to see players more players improve, and I want to see good tennis, and I want to see more matches like the Australian Open final and the yeah. Madrid final. My uh, my hopes for some result hopes. I Pagula, I would love to see her at least make a Slam semi final. She has the same oh, thing for yeah. Rublev on the men's side. Like they have this, they have this ceiling, you know. They see them break through it because they, especially Pagula, just like such a clear, you know, it's a very deserving number three player. Our buddy Matt Trilope actually just recently wrote an article for the Australian Open website, I believe, or tennis, something, I think Australian Open. Um, check it out on his his feed. Sort of assessing Pagula's chances at winning a Grand Slam and maybe Australian Open or just one of the other ones this next year and. I do believe that she has the, I think she's legitimately very number three. I think that she's behind the top two, but ahead of everybody behind her. 
in terms of what I would assess, even though I guess maybe like a Rabakana has maybe higher highs, uh, arguably. But yeah, I would like to see Pagula get rewarded for her her increasingly solid resume in this way that she's just built up in this way that's very tough to argue with. Um, yeah, and then and then seeing some of these players who feel like missed opportunities on the tour, you know, um, namely the two U.S. Open champions in Raducanu and uh, Andrescu, I will mention there as you know players who I remember her. Yeah, who have not been able to sort of back that up. That they're both, I think, very engaging players in very different ways, um, and and would be good to see them back. And Naomi obviously um, would be nice to have her have, have a, a year uh, that that's good. I've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about her and writing about her in, in this book, which is available to pre-order. <laughs> if, you, if you if you if you actually if you if you pre-order it, when you listen to the podcast, you won't even hear the mentions anymore. It'll just gloss by it. So it's like think of it like getting deleting the ads essentially. But yeah, please, please, please pre-order the book. Appreciate it. And uh, there's there's chances, right? Like I said, they can't control the dice rolls of the results. There are some really great options on different sides of these dice. And some surprising things we might not know about that could still come up and, and, and be great, you know, too. Like, you know, again, on a pure tennis level, that Sabalenka or Bach in the Australian Open final was, was amazing. And and that that was a great time for everyone in the stadium and, and for everyone watching that match. Um, so, you know, it, it can be surprises, but it can also be some reliable things. Yeah, but just, it still just feels like the the tour still, the women especially, have not really gotten their their footing back since the pandemic. It, it just does feel like they have not proven yeah sturdy and it's just a few different things that have come and we've met, we named them you know Barty Osaka whatever the Serena retirement obviously was completely foreseeable and they're so lucky they got as much time out of her as they did um, retiring at 40 but but yeah there's uh, chances for more good things ahead so all that is to say we enjoy tennis we like watching tennis we hope it does well I do also agree with what you say <laughs> throwing all this out the window where you say like where you were talking about the gatekeeping side of it like and the whole break point thing like i don't need tennis yeah. to be wildly more successful and popular yeah. as a writer yes it's nice and a journalist it's nice covering this sport having more people interested but purely as a as a fan i don't know if you need to be saying oh like the u.s open for example this year was way too crowded i don't need that many people interested in tennis stay home yeah. Yeah. do something else new york's a big city yeah. why are you all at tennis so yeah yeah, that's basically it. We should wrap up. It's been a long show. Thank you, Tumani, for your time here. This is the delight. And here's to a great year of Women's Tennis 2024. Not sure if we'll have NCR again this year. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. We'll definitely be in Australia. I'll be there. You'll be there. Do some yep. shows. Talk about the book, which will just come out. Uh, you can pre-order it. Uh, and thanks for listening. Bye, folks. Thank you. That's the way